Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Well, our theme today is Run to Win, and our video introduction really has set the stage for us, including the reading of our text today from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses uh, 24 to 27. Well, I have three questions for you today. What race are you running? What's your motivation? And what are you willing to give up? But before we address these, we really need to recap where we are in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. So Paul had received news in the form of a letter of several problems in this church. These included division, immorality, idolatry, and even theological confusion. And in the introduction to 1 Corinthians, he, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, Paul's assessment of the situation is that their conduct is completely out of step with the gospel. And at the root of their disunity was arrogance, which is completely incompatible with God's free gifts in Christ. And he listed those in chapter 1 in verse 30. 
the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man, but the wisdom of God, righteousness through Christ, the sanctification of the work of the Spirit in our lives, and then our ultimate redemption. What the church was exhibiting there in Corinth was this self-centered insistence on their own rights, even over those who were weak and marginalized. And Paul's going to get to that later on in this letter. What we see from them is their top priority was their own social advancement rather than the gospel's advancement. What we've studied the last uh, couple of weeks is Paul sharing his example. Now, Paul was an apostle of Christ, but he was willing to give up his rights for the spiritual benefits of the Corinthians. He's communicated to us his responsibility as a steward to proclaim the gospel. As he sh as shared last week and, and Pastor went through with us, he showed how he was willing to adapt his method as necessary to share an unwavering message of the blessings of the gospel. He said, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He, next, to wrap up this section, he's going to provide an athletic metaphor to describe the rigors and his single-minded focus to advance the gospel. So this was read uh, in our video introduction. And beginning in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one gets the prize. So run in such a way as to get the prize. This athletic metaphor would have been very familiar to the Corinthians. Now, Corinth was situated at a narrow land bridge, the so-called Isthmus, that connected the Peloponnese Peninsula with mainland Greece. This land bridge, we have been looking at a close-up here, was used in ancient times as a shortcut for boats uh, that didn't want to have to sail all the way around the peninsula. Now, originally, they used an overland stone ramp, and they would actually drag the boats across this isthmus. Um, now there's a nifty canal. I'm sure that's uh, much easier. Now, Paul was no doubt drawing from a competition that was familiar to the Corinthians. This would have been the Isthmian Games. Now, the games at Isthmia were held twice during the four-year ancient uh, Olympic cycle. Now, the city of Corinth was actually in charge of these games, and Isthmia was only about six miles from Corinth. And the games included athletic as well as music context. Uh, that's going to uh, come up a little bit later here. And it's very probable that the games were held during Paul's stay at Corinth. The games were famous for a particular foot race that occurred over a set length called a stadion. And this is actually uh, from which we get our word stadium. The winner of this race was so celebrated by the Greeks that the winner would be memorialized as the hero of the games. Greeks of the day could actually use the names of the winner as a reference point for dates. For instance, a conversation might go, remember when Cyrus Diakos won the foot race? Oh yeah, that was AD 51. That would be like us saying, remember when arguably the greatest football team to take the, take the field won the Super Bowl? Oh yeah, 1992 Dallas Cowboys, Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irwin. You might challenge me on that one, but it's the truth. This is an example of a stadium. Imagine the crowds that would be assembled around this, cheering the runners on to victory. And I want you to remember that imagery because we're going to come back to that uh, in a familiar passage a little bit later. 
Now the contestants would compete for the prize under the careful scrutiny of judges who would be making sure that every rule of the contest was obeyed. The victor of a given event who participated according to the rules was led by the judge to the platform called the bima. There, a laurel wreath was placed on his head as a symbol of victory. So uh, this uh, word bima, we get, the, we get the term the judgment seat. Now Paul continues, he says, they do it, this competition, to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. What is this word crown that he's using here? Well, this is maybe not the crown that you think of, king's crown. Uh, a king's crown, uh, the term would be a diadem. That's the royal crown. We see this uh, pictured uh, of the Lord in Revelation chapter 19. But the word here he uses for crowns is Stephanos. Yes, this is the root of mine and Stephanie's name, crowned ones. This Stephanos is the victor's crown. And this is the wreath given to the victorious athlete before the judge at the bema. And this word is used to describe the crowns promised to believers for faithfulness in the Christian life. So this would be examples of these crowns, these wreaths. Sometimes they were made from pine branches. Other times they were made from wilted salary leaves. Um, so when Paul says they do it to get a crown that will not last, an imperishable one, whereas we do it to get a crown that will last forever, this certainly uh, rings true. This is my Stephanos. I got this uh, on a trip to Ephesus in 2008. It still sits in my room. This was made from an olive branch. I did nothing to win this. Uh, I, my guide uh, ripped this off an olive tree, twisted it into a uh, Stephanos, if you like, and he placed it on my head. Uh, this used to be green. It was very pliable. Now it's brown, it's crumbling, and I can't handle it too much or everything starts falling off of it. It's absolutely perishable. However, the Bible presents to us um, many crowns promised to the faithful believer. It's the same principle here, except now Jesus, who is God, is our examiner and our rewarder. We see an imperishable crown um, awarded for leading a disciplined life. That's going to be the focus of our presentation today. We read of a crown of rejoicing given for evangelism and discipleship in 1 Thessalonians. A crown of righteousness for loving the Lord's appearance in 2 Timothy. The crown of life for enduring trials from James and from Revelation. And even a crown of glory for those shepherding God's flocks faithfully in 1 Peter. So in all of these passages, believers pictured as a competitor in a spiritual contest. As the victorious Grecian athletes would appear before the bema to receive his perishable reward, so the Christian will appear before Christ's bema to receive his imperishable award. The judge at the bema bestows rewards to the victors. Now, what the judge did not do is he did not whip the losers. We might also add that he didn't sentence them to hard labor. So this truly is a reward seat. Uh, what's being pictured here is a time of rewards or loss of rewards following examination. But it's not a time of punishment where believers are judged for their sins. That would be completely inconsistent with the finished work of Christ on the cross because he totally paid the penalty for our sins. 
We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, some translations have said, according to what he has done, whether good or evil. But I think this is actually an unfortunate translation. The word uh, that's translated bad in, in this translation comes from the Greek word phalos, which means worthless. So the idea is not that God will reward us for the good things we did and punish us for the bad things we did. Rather, he's going to reward us for the worthwhile things we did and not reward us for those worthless things that we did. There really is no place here for some form of forensic punishment because Christ has forever borne all of God's wrath toward uh, believers' sins all in the past. We stand glorified before Christ without our old sin nature. So we are without guilt because we have been declared righteous in Christ. Now, recall that Paul had used a different metaphor earlier in 1 Corinthians, but it communicates a similar principle of reward and loss. And he, here he used the metaphor of a building. Recall from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Should believers be motivated by the desire for reward? Someone would say, why do I even need a reward or a crown? Isn't it enough to be assured of heaven with the Lord Jesus forever? Well, even if most Christians would not actually say this, they often act as if the possibility of reward provides no vital motivation for faithful Christian living and service. But if God takes the trouble this many times to urge our obedience by promise of a reward, we really should embrace that promise with thanks. Let's, let's read together from Philippians chapter 3. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy, he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And in 2 John, Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. We're not only to do good works, but we're to do them for this reason. So this teaching, really, this is not talking about salvation by works or merit. This is talking about our motivation for faithfulness as believers. Well, you might recognize this trophy on the left as the Lombardi Trophy. This is awarded to NFL Super Bowl winners. 
the owner actually gets the trophy on behalf of the team. The players get Super Bowl rings. Now, we all know this guy, right? Uh, I think he might be close to having a ring for every finger at this point. However, when you think about this, is this really what the players are working for? Is the reward to have glittering rings for their fingers? Considering the amount of money that they got paid, I'm sure they could buy much more valuable rings than uh, these Super Bowl rings. Do you know, actually, you can buy Super Bowl rings? Replicas for sure, but yes, you can actually buy the real Super Bowl rings. Some of these players actually sell them and then people auction them off on different sites. So no, the rings are not the reward. They're merely a recognition for what the players have achieved in winning the Super Bowl in that particular year. These are two uh, medals um, that I still have in my possession. I actually had quite a few of these, actually. These are from the Peel Music Festival. Uh, Peel is the county that I grew up in, uh, just uh, outside uh, Toronto and Mississauga. Um, there was a music festival every year. People from all over Peel County would uh, submit their names for different categories for competition, all different uh, instruments. I, of course, uh, competed uh, on the piano. And uh, you would uh, uh, sign up for different categories you would be given select pieces of music that you had to uh, perform, and then you would be evaluated by judges on that performance. I would practice for months and months, hours and hours of preparation for this festival. Uh, this required significant discipline on my part. It involved sacrifice. Now, I want you to look at these medals. These are probably only about uh, an inch to an inch, inch and a half in size. These are supposed to be, you know, the gold medals for uh, winning this particular category. I don't actually know that there's any gold in them uh, whatsoever. This is not the reward. Even though I was given this in recognition uh, for my performance in that music festival, this is not what I was working for. What I was working for, my motivation was to perform at the highest level. I had my parents who were, uh, who were behind me, cheering me on. I had my, uh, my music teacher who was cheering me on, who worked so diligently with me to help me reach the highest level of performance. So, so this is not the reward that I was seeking. Um, this is probably relatively worthless at this point. But even still today, I can look back and I can see that this was a recognition for that faithfulness and that discipline that I was set on in preparing to participate in this competition. Now, we learn later in Revelation, there's this scene of the worshipers before the throne of Christ. And it says that they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now, these worshipers, their crowns, these were not the king's crowns. There was only one king. Their crowns would be these wreaths. Now, granted, these would be imperishable ones um, given to them by the Lord. In recognition 
of who he is and what he had done in their lives, their uh, reaction is to take these awards that they had received and cast them before the throne because they acknowledge that all of these things come through the blessings of the true king. Well, this happened about a week ago. This is my son, James, uh, who had been preparing for months on a professional soccer team. In, uh, in this game, you can see uh, that he was substituted in and he made his first professional soccer appearance in his life. Now, you could not just go up to this team at the, at the time of the game and go up to the coach and say, hey coach, put me in. In fact, you couldn't even have gone six months ago to the team and shown up and say, hey, I'd like to be on your team. Can you, uh, can, can you let me join up? I want you to imagine how many kids across all of the United States have been involved in youth soccer from the time they were toddlers or kindergarten age. And then from that group of individuals, I want you to imagine how many people actually did club soccer. And then I want you to imagine what number of those actually participated on their varsity soccer teams for their high schools. And then of that group of individuals, how many actually went on to be on soccer teams and played for their college? And then from that group of individuals, how many people would go on as adults to play amateur soccer? And then from that group of individuals, how many are going to go on to actually play professional soccer? It's an incredibly uh, small percentage of individuals. So how do you get there? Well, this brings us to the other aspect of our passage from today. Paul says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And then further down in verse 27, he describes that kind of training. He says, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. Now, in the Christian race, we don't compete with one another for the prize. We compete with ourselves. The emphasis here is on self-discipline, not really competition. In a foot race, only one person is the winner, but in the Christian race, all who keep the rules and run hard will receive a reward. So we've used two metaphors today. We, we have this uh, athletic metaphor, and I, I use the example of all of the self-discipline that goes into a soccer player to advance through the ranks all the way, hopefully, to make it as a professional soccer player. I also gave you the example of the, of the piano player starting when I was about seven years old, starting on the instrument at, at the youngest age, and all the years of discipline that went into practicing over and over and over again. I like this quote. Now, this quote is, is talking about non-spiritual matters, but it says, amateurs practice until they get it right. Professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. This is absolutely true in the life of a professional musician. And uh, this is true of professional athletes. They don't just practice something until they get it right one time. They practice it over and over and over again until when they're in that situation in the midst of a game, they can't get it wrong. Discipline is training yourself to do the right thing 
when you don't feel like it. Tom Landry said, he was coach of Dallas Cowboys years ago. He said, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. You may know this golfer, Gary Player. He was one of the most successful international golfers of all time. And he recounted that he actually lost count of how many times someone came up and said to him, I'd give anything if I could hit a golf ball like you. Well, after one particularly grueling day on the links, Gary Player couldn't resist correcting a person who said that to him. And he stopped short and he said, no, you wouldn't. You'd give anything to hit a golf ball like me if it were easy. Player then listed the things one would have to do in order to achieve his level of play. You've got to get up at five o'clock in the morning. You've got to go out and hit a thousand golf balls, walk up to the clubhouse, put bandages on your hand where it started bleeding, and then you go out and hit another thousand golf balls. That's what it takes to hit a golf ball like me. What these athletes are communicating is the incredible self-discipline that's required to reach the heights of their craft. Paul actually picks up on this, and when he uses this word competes, he uses the Greek word agonizomai. This can be translated to contend or to struggle, and it's actually uh, the word from which we get the English word agonizes. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. When he uses this word discipline, he uses the Greek word hupopiazzo. It means to pummel or to bruise. So because uh, Paul's uh, using these words and because uh, he used the imagery of a boxer, obviously I, I was drawn uh, directly to uh, Rocky Balboa there. I actually, I, I love this word hupopiazzo because hupopion is the medical term that we describe for under the eye. So when you see all this bruising under Rocky's eye here, this is a perfect imagery of what Paul's trying to communicate here. To receive the prize of our Lord's well done, we need to give this kind of effort. We need to agonizeme. We need to contend. We need to struggle. We need to exercise self-control. Competitors in the Isthmian Games had to train for 10 months. An athlete in training denies himself or herself many lawful pleasures in order to gain an extra edge of superiority so that they can win. Likewise, we may need to limit our liberty for a higher goal as spiritual athletes. Paul ran the Christian race purposefully not aimlessly, not half-heartedly. He wanted to gain a prize at the judgment seat of Christ. To use a different figure, um, he wants to make the same point by saying he does not throw wild punches, but he sought to make every punch score. Christian service is not just activity. It's activity that's focused on a target, namely the building of the church, the defeat of the enemy who wants to destroy people, it's the work of the gospel. Paul describes the work that he's involved in. Later in 1 Corinthians, we're going to read in chapter 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. 
And then in Colossians, he writes, and for this purpose also, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. This is an unusual statue. This is in the city of Boston. You might look at it and go, what in the world is that trying to depict? Well, this is depicting an American track and field athlete named James Connolly. And in 1896, when they restarted the modern Olympic Games, so this was the first Olympic Games that had been held in 1400 years, the first event was the hop, skip, and a jump. And so what that statue is depicting is his final jump and the landing point where he won. So he was the first athlete awarded a gold medal in the modern Olympic Games. Now, when Connolly was determined to be an Olympian, it cost him a Harvard education, all of his savings, loads of stress and strain. He actually had to abandon his former dreams and he embraced this one, which was to be an Olympic athlete and a gold medalist. Now, Paul finishes this passage by saying, now I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Well, how could a believer be disqualified? So the Greek word he uses here is adokimos. This is the negative of the Greek word dokimos. Dokimos means tested or approved. So the negative adokimos means not standing the test, unapproved or worthless. So just as in 1 Corinthians 3, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So Paul's using this imagery here of the building, and he's saying, you have the foundation that has been laid in Jesus Christ. You are saved. You are declared righteous, and you will be glorified. But you have been called to a higher purpose to labor for the Lord. We're to live a life of faithfulness in his service. And those works are gonna be tested. And when they are proven worthwhile, when they've been tested, when they've been approved, there will be a reward. The motivation is not this victor's crown, this Stephanos that we're gonna receive, but it's gonna be who is giving it to us. It's gonna be the recognition for what we did in his service. So there are some who will do nothing to work faithfully for the Lord. And Paul says, that man will be saved, but it'll be as if he came through fire. Everything will be burned up. He'll have nothing but maybe the, the clothes on his back to show for his effort for the Lord. Jim Rohn's a motivational speaker, but I, I found this quote. I think it's relevant. He says, everyone must choose one of two pains the pain of discipline or the pain of regret? Well, are there gonna be those that have regret at the Bema seat before the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Chuck Swindoll had something to say about this. He says, it would not be heaven if we were to spend eternity in sadness because of what we did not do. But undoubtedly, there will be regret but our overwhelming emotion will be the realization of the wonderful grace of God that saved us and brought us into heaven. There will be rejoicing in heaven instead of tears. 
And of course, we read in a couple of passages the description of God wiping away our tears. It's always made me wonder, why are people crying at that point in heaven? But will some of us be shedding tears before the Bema seat as we look back with regret over having done nothing of what God had called us to do in this life that he's given us? Would we not rather uh, be coming before the Bema seat, before Christ, and looking forward to the Stephanos that he would place on our heads in recognition for the service that we did out of love and devotion to him faithfully over the years that he's given us. The Hebrew writer in chapter 12 writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, remember that picture of the stadium that I showed you at the beginning? where the people would be running on that foot race and all the witnesses would be around in the stadium cheering the runners on. And then the Hebrew writer says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Obviously, we need to set aside sin. But there's two things that the Hebrew writer says we need to lay aside. We need to lay aside sin, but it also says we need to lay aside every weight. Well, what are the weights that we need to lay aside? Charles Spurgeon said in his sermon on this topic, well, they have so much business to do. They say they must live, but they forget they must also die. They have such a deal to attend to. They can't think of living near to Christ. They find they have little time for devotions. Morning prayer must be cut short because their business begins early. They can have no prayer at night because business keeps them so late. How can they be expected to think of the things of God? There's so much to do to answer this question. What shall I eat? What shall I drink? Uh, what should I put on? The psalmist said, in vain, you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. But he says, for while they sleep, he, the Lord, provides for those he loves. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Now the Hebrew writer goes on to say, as we run with endurance this race that is set before us, we're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here we see Christ's motivation. The cross was shame. He was willing to endure that. He would despise it. But what got him through that was looking forward to the joy that was set before him. He would be ultimately glorified, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But we're also going to see that there was more to this. There was more joy to come than even his own glorification. Now, I've given you some examples today. The pianist, the football player, the running athlete. I want to tell you that I know for certain that when I received that medal for participating in that competition in the Peel Music Festival, there was great joy in my piano teacher. It was as if he was awarding me that medal because he's the only one who knew all of the discipline that was required to get to that point. He's the one who knew how much work 
we had done together to get to that point. So when I received that medal, it was like I was receiving that medal from my teacher who's saying, well done, Stephen. This is what you worked so hard to achieve. It's the same thing with the NFL players. You see the uh, NFL owner receive the, uh, the Lombardi trophy, but what does he immediately do? He hands it over to the coach. He hands it over to the leaders of the football team. And uh, it's his joy to see his players uh, receiving that award. Christ's joy is seeing many sons brought to glory. It's Christ's joy that as we come before him at the Bema seat, and he has the opportunity to say, well done, good and faithful servant. We read in Isaiah 53, this is in the context of the suffering servant who is the Messiah, Christ, depicted uh, in Isaiah. And it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And then the Hebrew writer in chapter 2 says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Whoa, what did we just read? I don't know how many times I read these verses, and I've always missed this. Who is talking here? When it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is the Lord talking. This is Christ talking. In bringing many sons to glory, he's rejoicing in seeing all of these individuals glorified with him before the throne. And it says, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. How amazing to be standing before the Lord of glory, and he will be singing my praise before all of the other brothers. This is our motivation. This is what should be driving us. Paul's given us two great metaphors to be thinking about in this study in Corinthians. We've all got the same foundation in Christ. We now have an opportunity to build a building. What are we going to choose to put on that building? Is it going to be gold, silver, or is it going to be hay, stubble? How will it be tested? How will, how will those works be examined before, uh, before Christ at the Bema? When the fire of testing comes, what will be left standing on that building? We're all running a race if we're a believer. If you're not running, then it means you haven't taken that step. You haven't said, yes, I accept the gift of your salvation. I accept the, the, the gift of your righteousness. 
I accept your redemption. That's a free gift. We can't earn that. There's no works we could do in this life to, to receive that. But once we have received those things, the Bible makes it clear that we're now running a race. Well, what are we carrying? You've seen those runners. They have these sleek shoes. They've got the, the sleek outfits. They've put aside every weight that could weigh them down. So they have that extra edge so that they can win. What are the things that are weighting us down? Now Spurgeon walked through some examples of weights that would be common in his day. I would say that those still hold true today. But what are some other weights? What are those other distractions? What are those things that are keeping us from those morning devotions, from that time of prayer before our Lord? Uh, from sharing uh, the word with those need to hear it, from uh, using our resources to further the work of the Lord. We need to put aside those weights. We need to run the race with endurance. And we will receive a Stephanos. We will receive a crown. But it's not the crown that is really our motivation, but it's to receive it from the one who will be singing our praise in heaven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the salvation that we have in you, only in you, not in recognition for anything that we've done, not of any merit of our own, but simply because of the work that you did on our behalf on the cross. You've given us that gift freely. All we have to do is accept it. Lord, we pray today that um, you've reminded all of us of the work that we have to do, the faithfulness that you've called us to. We pray that you would help us to be reminded that we're running a race. Help us to run the right race. Help us not to run aimlessly. Help us to keep our bodies under control, to be disciplined, to get to the place where Every movement is going to count. It's going to count for your kingdom. Lord, we look forward to the day when we stand before you, where we, we can receive the rewards from you, Lord. And then we also look forward to the time where we can throw those crowns before your feet and say, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Him receive all glory forever and ever. Amen.